We're glad that you've joined us this morning. We, uh, we're in a series on 1 Samuel. Um, and so that's where we will be. But before we do that, let's, let's spend a moment in prayer. Father, uh, you are gracious. You have provided for our every need. There is no good thing in our lives that was not provided by your hand. And you have provided for us even when we have not paid attention to you. You are an ever patient and loving Father, diligently working to provide good for your children, even when we have spurned you. And so, Father, we have confidence that we can come before you with our request this morning, knowing that you are the God who knows how to give good gifts and that you will provide for us in our hours of need. Father, we do pray for the many among us who are traveling this weekend, that that would be safe. For those who are um, still visiting with their families, and maybe will be through tomorrow or Tuesday, Father, we know that those conversations around the dinner table and with family can sometimes be strained, sometimes relationships are are difficult, sometimes they are broken, and we feel like we have come together out of necessity and out of force. We pray, God, that um, cooler heads and softer, warmer hearts would prevail. Words of love and kindness would come out. But especially for our members here, God, give them boldness to proclaim the gospel and to speak the truth of Jesus, even with those family members and friends who are some of the most difficult to speak to for, for reasons that we don't fully understand. But all those interconnected relationships and emotions and feelings make it difficult. So we pray that you give them an extra measure of boldness to speak your truth as it ought to be spoken. Father, we pray for the friends and families of this missionary who was killed at the hands of the Sentinelese over the past week or two weeks. We know that the world will will mock him. And we don't know his planning and his thoughts and his um, methods. But we do see a man whose heart was to proclaim your gospel where it had not been proclaimed. And he risked his own life, knowingly, knowingly went to a great possibility of death in order to spare, perhaps, an eternal death for a few remote individuals. May we not be so hasty 
to write off such commitment and sacrifice. And may we have a fraction of that boldness and commitment among our colleagues, among our co-workers, among our neighbors, among strangers in the street who will not shoot an arrow through our heart. We pray for the Sentinelese that one way or another the gospel would be proclaimed to them and that they would be saved from a life of everlasting damnation and be called sons and daughters of the risen King. We thank you, God, that you have bestowed that title on us. May we bear it wisely. May we bear it faithfully. May we give your name glory in how we bear it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we are in uh, 1 Samuel this morning. We are in chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse... I said we're going to start in verse 12, but uh, let me back up. And start at the second part of verse 11. So if you want to turn, click, swipe, tap. Otherwise, get out your Bible some way to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And if you need one, just throw your hand in the air and someone will... Slip you one when no one else is looking, maybe. Sometimes they're slick. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And, that, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them, let them burn the fat first, and then... Take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, 
who will intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. So we're looking at a passage as a very different tenor than the one we looked at last week. You know, often we, we look in our world and it seems like those who are called to lead us and those who are called to govern us act with injustice act with a lack of mercy, act with, act with a selfishness that seems to be directed toward their own interests rather than the interests of the people that they lead. And the reality is that sometimes these things seem to be unending. Sometimes these things seem to go on without pause. They go on without a check. They, they seem like they will never, ever come to an end. In fact, maybe more than ever, we feel in our country that such things are true. We had a whole election about it. We had an entire election in 2016 about feelings that our government was impotent, and we had candidates on both sides of the aisle arguing that they alone could change the course of our government. This passage has a lot of lessons for us with regard to how God looks at these situations. And through three different 
vignettes, three different um, events in the life of the family of Eli, we will get an idea of exactly what God deals with and what, or what God does with this sort of injustice, but moreover, a warning for us who maybe aren't even ones in power. So let's look at these three vignettes, and these, these three different vignettes, these three little short stories give us a, a contrast, and, and they give us a, um, a confrontation in the second one, and in the third one, we will see a crashing down. Now, the passage starts on a sour note, because after the passage we looked at last week, 1 Samuel, uh, the very first verse of chapter 1, uh, through the end of Hannah's song, her prayer in chapter 2, we had a, a desperate situation in a desperate time that was remedied by the Lord's awesome provision. It was a passage that demonstrated that faithfulness still existed in Israel and Yahweh was still a God who rewarded faithfulness. But the second part of chapter 2 reminds us that we are still in the period of the judges, the time in which every man did what was right in his own eyes. I mentioned last week that during this period, roughly 200 years long or so, from the middle of the 13th century to the middle of the 11th century, things were pretty dark. There were bright spots like Ruth and Boaz, and there were bright spots like Elkanah and Hannah, but there were many, many dark places. And the story of the book of Judges was often the story of God rescuing his people by using horribly flawed men and women and rescuing them despite his people's regular rebellion. Of course, the one place that should be free of corruption should be the priesthood, especially those priests who served in the tabernacle and offered sacrifices to Yahweh on behalf of the people, the ministers of God. That's the one place in Israel, right, where God's glory should shine bright. But instead we read here in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. It's actually a bit more emphatic than that. It says that the sons of Eli were sons of worthlessness or sons of Belial. It's not a super common word in Hebrew, Belial, but it's an important one. And over time it came to be used as the name of a demon or another name for the devil. We probably shouldn't read that latter meaning back into this passage, but, but you understand the depth of wickedness that was understood by this term, Belial. Belial describes a, a character flaw that seeks to overturn God's good rule. And very often in the Old Testament, when, when people are described as having this Belial they encourage others to do the same. It's not a passive sin. It's a picture that one gets from, the picture one gets from Scripture is a person who is almost passionately seeking opportunity to pursue evil. You can look up a few passages in your own time. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 13, verses 12 through 18 is the, it's the first mention I can find in, in the Old Testament. Um, and, and there, the, the the people who had Belial were people who might seek to lead Israel to worship false gods. And in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11, 
this Belial is, is described as a heart attitude that, that seeks to take advantage of the Lord's goodness in order to oppress another human being. There's a description of this person in Proverbs that maybe sums it up very well. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. The author here in 1 Samuel gives us an example of Belial, their worthlessness, but it might take a little explanation, uh, maybe even more than I can give this morning, but we'll, we'll give at least a little bit of it, um, because it's a bizarre situation that the author paints. And, and it might be bizarre to us because the author is assuming some things that we just don't know about anymore. There may have been some facts of history that the original audience knew that we don't know. Um, but here's what seems to be going on. It, there's two things that seem to be going on in this first vignette. First, when the, the Israelites made a sacrifice, without going into detail, the animal would be slaughtered at the tabernacle. And, and various parts of the animal were not ever to be eaten. Other parts of the animal were often given to the priests as, as their sort of payment for the work they did in the, the tabernacle. And so this is how they would eat. This is how they would live. And, and for peace offerings, which was the one type of sacrifice the Israelites could make, a, a sacrifice that represented good relationships between the worshiper and Yahweh. This is a peace offering. Uh, the worshiper himself or herself would share in the animal as well, as if they were eating a meal with God. It's a very symbolic sacrifice. And the fact that the text talks about boiling the meat suggests that this is happening after the sacrifice. They've sacrificed the animal. The worshiper has offered uh, a peace offering, most likely. And the worshiper has offered parts to God. And they have now returned with the portion that is theirs to their home or to wherever they are staying near the tabernacle so that they can prepare the food to eat their portion of it. And so the suggestion is, is that the priests who helped them offer the sacrifice that day would send a servant out to those individuals' homes or wherever they knew that person to be staying because they may have come from the other side of the country to, to visit the tabernacle. And, and they would find them in the middle of their kitchen preparations, stick a fork in their pot, and take out some meat for themselves. And, and so in doing this, the priests were stealing from the worshipers. They were using their position of power to extort individuals and deprive them of even their basic sustenance. And let's not forget that meat was probably more of a luxury in that day than in ours. There was no such thing as a carnivore diet in the 11th century BC. And so the peace offering was a time of celebration and fellowship with God and family. It was maybe a bit more like our Thanksgiving meal, except that it had been offered to God first. And so it wasn't an everyday meal, but a special meal, great significance and great cost to the family, and it was stolen from them. You imagine 
many of us maybe can't appreciate, but if, if, if some of us maybe who came from poorer backgrounds, or if you can imagine a friend or a neighbor of yours who, who is poorer, for whom maybe a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal is a, is a big deal and the family has all gathered together and they've, they've really saved up. They've really saved up to put on this great, great feast and maybe even splurged a little bit more than they ought to have responsibly to put on this great feast and somebody were to break into their home and take the turkey and take the stuffing and walk off with it and leave this family that could barely afford what they had given already to eat the leftovers. This is essentially what they're doing. Except compound that with the fact that this has been a sacrifice offered to Yahweh. The second thing the author mentions is even worse. The normal way a sacrifice was offered was that the animal was slaughtered and that the fatty portions, the choicest portions, the best parts, were burned on the fire. Those parts, at a minimum, were always offered to God. And it symbolized that God alone should have the privilege of the very best of the offerings. In fact, the, the Israelites were not supposed to eat the fatty parts of any sacrificial animal, even if it wasn't being used for a sacrifice, just as a reminder that the best parts belong to God. So if they, not as part of a sacrifice, but just as a part of a normal meal, they were going to have a goat or a bull uh, for dinner, they wouldn't eat those parts of the animal. It would have to go to another use. So the author tells us that after the animal was slaughtered, but before anything had been done with it, the priest would send a strong man to demand the meat raw. Now, I, I mean, I sort of understand the position here. I mean, roasted meat is always better than boiled meat. I will take my meat flame-touched, carcinogenic carbon surrounding it, please. Just a little on the edges, but, you know, the priests were taking God's portion. That's what's going on here. They wanted the best-tasting meat, even if it belonged to God. They were serving themselves rather than God let alone the worshipers. And so in this way, they weren't just robbing the people, but they were robbing God. And so the author can say in verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. It'd be bad enough if the worshipers themselves were stealing from God. That's a sin nearly as old as the human race. That was, that was Cain's sin. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, before he murdered Abel, Abel had offered the best of his livestock to God, but Cain had offered just, if you read the text carefully, just some of what he had. And there was a, an emphasis there on the quality that Abel had given God the first and the best, and, and, and Cain had just given something over here. But God deserves our best, our, our best. And that's a reminder for us, although it's not the heartbeat of this passage, it's a reminder to us of do we give God our absolute best or do we give God our leftovers? Do we give God our first or do we give God our second or fourth or our 19th? How do we budget our, our time and, and our talent and our treasure? Does God get the best of our time? 
Or does God give, get what is left over after we, our other commitments have been shored up? How do we use our talents, our skills, our abilities, the gifts in which God has blessed us? Do we use them first and foremost for God's glory? Or do we use them first and foremost for our own glory and then when we find the time, sometimes they go to God. How do we use our financial resources? Do we give God from the, the, the best and, and first of our labors? Do we plan to, to give God of our finances? Or do we sort of pay for everything that we want to pay for and do everything that we want to do and have all the fun that we want to have and then we look at what's left over and see what we can give God from the leftovers. Are we serving like Hophni and Phinehas or are we serving as the Israelites who were challenging them? No, please don't take the meat from me. And, and, and if you're going to do it, at least give God the fat first. Or we say, no, I, the fat's for me. And if there's some leftover, we'll, we'll give it to God. But there is something particularly perverse, isn't there? When, when people in authority use their power to rob the weak and to rob God. I wish that were something we could say is not true anymore. But I'm sad to say all you have to do is, is look in the plain dealer over the last 10 years and, and, and you will find, just in the time I've been in Cleveland the last 12 years, uh, copious stories of, of pastors and religious leaders just here in Cleveland and, and the broader Cleveland area doing exactly this kind of thing, uh, uh, pilfering money from the, the, the collections. You, you have uh, uh, pastors taking advantage of their, their position to, to sleep with women in their, their church. You have uh, pastors embezzling funds from other organizations they run. And this is a perverse thing. It's a reminder, though, lest we, we get too proud of ourselves. The, the lesson in that is not look at all these bad and evil people in power. I, I think part of that lesson is that heaven forbid I get power because I might become that kind of person. Because we don't know what we're capable of until we have the ability to do it. And yet, at the end of this little section here, we see this, this little word. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen garment. Or a linen ephod, excuse me. So we have this, this second little vignette that, that comes up, and it's a, it's a major contrast because we get a peek back into Elkanah and Hannah's family. Samuel's in this linen ephod, and the ephod was a priestly garment. The word minister is a term that's frequent in the Bible, but refers almost exclusively to the work, this particular word for minister, uh, to the work in the tabernacle and in the temple. So Samuel wasn't a priest, but he was a Levite. So as a Levite, which is the tribe of Israel that the priests came from, he might have tabernacle responsibilities. 
later in life, but he wasn't part of the priestly family. He's also a boy, and typically a priest didn't serve until he was about 25 years old, which is a lot older on average back then when people didn't live as long. And his mother would bring him a robe every year, and that's a thoughtful mother, little boys grow. But again, while the word can refer to something like a cloak, it's also a word much more commonly used to describe priestly garments. And so we get this idea that Samuel, though he's not a priest himself, is being portrayed in glowingly positive terms, presented almost as if he were a priest. And to the extent that he's serving the Israelites as they worship Yahweh, he was much more a priest than the actual priests, Eli's sons. And Elkanah and Hannah, by virtue of their continuing to return to the tabernacle year after year after year, show that they remain faithful worshipers of Yahweh. Step back from that for a sec. Can you imagine, we, we talked about what Hannah's sacrifice effectively was last week, um, that she wanted a son more than anything else, and when she is given a son, she gives that son back to the Lord. She's given that son to minister before God for his entire life. And in that, she finds her greatest joy. But can you imagine, because Elkanah and Hannah are not stupid people, I don't imagine, can you imagine sending your son to grow up with these hoodlums and thugs? Those of us who are parents or are thinking about becoming parents, uh, we are often at pains to protect our children. We don't want any possible harmful influences to come to them. And, you know, that's, that's really how the suburbs took off in this country, right? Lots of, let's, be, let's be honest, lots of white people didn't want their children to grow up around black people. And so when African Americans started moving to the northern cities like Chicago and to Cleveland and to Pittsburgh and Toledo, white people move out. And so we got suburbs. We have this idea in our head that we think we can protect our children, we can protect our loved ones from danger. But the truth is that the greatest danger your child or your future child will ever face is the one that's in your child. It's not what's outside your child that is a threat to your child. It's what's in your child that is a threat to your child. It is the prideful and idolatrous and rebellious heart that has stopped beating because of its sin and has grown as cold as stone toward its maker. That goes not just for your children, but it goes for your brother or your sister or your mother or your father, your friends, anyone you might try to protect in this world. It includes yourself. It's why you can't ultimately make yourself righteous by eliminating all the temptations around you. You can't make yourself righteous by locking yourself in a cell and saying, I have no temptations here, and so therefore I am righteous. Because the evil is in your heart. And until you begin killing the sin, cauterizing the wounds and, and cutting off the flesh that is necrotizing before you, you will not be righteous. Ask someone who has spent time in, in prison. Ask someone who has spent time in uh, the county jail downtown. And I'll tell you, they'll, they'll tell you that it can be very easy to do the right things when the temptations are stripped away from you. 
They'll call it jailhouse religion. There's a, there's a way to be righteous and to be holy and to, be, and to look externally like you're Christ-honoring when you can't get the drugs, when you can't get the sex, when you can't rob someone. But the temptations are right back when you get out. You can't make yourself holy by locking yourself in a box. But note here that there isn't even a hint of a threat to the faithfulness of Samuel. He is growing up at the tabernacle. He is growing up in the household of Eli. He is growing up amongst corrupt hoodlums. And there's not even a hint of a threat to his own personal faithfulness here. He grew up amidst some of the worst role models and deficient leadership one could possibly have imagined. But Hophni and Phinehas are no threats to the heart God has chosen to heal. Righteous women like Hannah and righteous men like Elkanah, they trust God more than they feel threatened by goons. And their faithfulness causes Eli to bless them for more children. And they have five more. And so in a fitting conclusion of last week's passage, God provided for Hannah. But the real focus that we start to see here is this contrast between sons. We see Eli's treatment of Yahweh's offering with contempt. and That's what's going on in his family. While Samuel's family produces a child that grows with Yahweh. Even despite these things. Well, we have a confrontation. We have a confrontation in the next verses. Um, Things get worse. I'm not sure that these actions are actually worse than the earlier ones, but at least they increase the number of cruel and wicked things we know about these two sons. Eli, we learn, is old. He's hearing about what his sons are doing, and although he's the high priest, he is apparently not doing much of the day-to-day work at the tabernacle. But the latest news from his sons is scandalous. They lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, we don't know what these women are. There's a couple of different possibilities here. There's a brief mention in the book of Exodus of women serving at the tabernacle. There's no clear indication of what they did there. We know that women could be Nazarites. So the Nazarite vow that we saw Samuel is taking in in chapter 1 was open to women as well. So women and men both could take the Nazarite vow. In that way, these women may have been like Samuel. They are people who have given up a a time of their life to serve God at the tabernacle. On the other hand, uh, it could be that given how corrupt Israel's worship was at this point, obviously, and given how prone Israel often was to imitate the idolatry of the neighboring religions... These may have been cult prostitutes. In other words, they might have been mixing sex and prostitution in with their worship. That was very common in the ancient Near East. Very common in the Greco-Roman world as well. If it's the former case, if these are Nazarite women, then it's, it's not hard to see that Eli's sons are using their power and authority to take advantage of these women. Sort of a, an 11th century B.C me too moment. If it's the latter case, if they're cult prostitutes, 
um, then the men are perverting the worship of Yahweh even further and doing something amazingly despicable. But neither is a good look. And it's not a secret. They're not, they're not doing this quietly behind the scenes. Eli's hearing about this through the grapevine. And so he, he confronts his sons and he issues them a warning. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This is a, a fascinating bit of theology here. Eli is concerned because his sons have sinned against God. Every sin ultimately is against God. But many sins, most sins maybe even had their first direction aimed at another person. And and in those cases, Eli suggests, God himself can be an intermediary between the two parties. That's a tricky idea. But I think the sense is that God is sovereign and he loves justice. If if I've been wronged, I, I, I can appeal to God to right the wrongs. Or I can appeal to God to sustain me through the losses that I've incurred. I can, I can appeal to God to, to reconcile me to the person who's wronged me. I've got a go-between. And if there's wrong on both sides, then, well, hopefully that as I grow closer to God and that person on the other side grows closer to God, we will inevitably be drawn closer together and find reconciliation. But if the problem lies between me and God, who can stand in that gap? Because a mediator has to be at least equal to either party and generally stands above both of them like a judge. If his sons had wronged God, Eli knew of no one who could plead on their behalf, no one who could remedy the situation. Because we who are Christians know that there is one who can. Uh, a party who can stand at least equal to God. And so mediate the two sides. Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who became man so that he could identify in every way with us, who could understand our temptations and understand our trials and understand exactly how we have rebelled against God and yet remained untainted by that sin. so that he could mediate between God and man, so that he could bridge the divide between God and man, so that as we come to Jesus Christ, a way can be made to restore and reconcile us to God. But Hophni and Phinehas wouldn't listen. And the explanation for why they wouldn't listen is another piece of theology. Could we give a whole sermon on this? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, if you've not thought deeply about these sorts of issues before, um, this kind of language might be throwing you for a loop. But there's three things the Bible consistently teaches. One, that God is sovereign over even the most minute details of human history. And that includes, the second thing, that God determines the times and places of everyone's lives. And three, that God raises people up for salvation and throws people down for destruction as part of His glorious plan. Now, getting all the, the details of how those different things work together. And then, like I said, that would be an entirely different 
sermon in and of itself. But those three facts don't mean, just to be clear, they don't mean that Hophni and Phineas don't have free will. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because the Bible tells us that the ultimate reason behind their choice is the God's will doesn't mean that there weren't secondary reasons for their choice. It's not as if Hophni was sitting there saying, I, I really want to listen to you, Dad, but there's some force that's just out there that's compelling me to do something I don't like. I, I wish you would stop it, but my, my hand is, is taking the three-pronged fork against my will. It's sticking it into the pot and stealing me. How do I make it stop, Dad? That's not what's happening. He is doing what he wants to do. It just so happens that it's also in God's will for it to continue to bring about his end. Hafti and Phineas did exactly what they wanted. And what they wanted was to serve themselves rather than to serve God. Repentance and righteousness, we have to remember, are not the default state of human beings this side of the fall. Our default state is rebellion. And God has to intervene to soften those stony hearts of ours. And in this case, it seems God was fed up and He chose not to awaken their sleeping souls. He allowed them to proceed on their course to their own destruction. But we shouldn't miss that these men had a chance for repentance. They were confronted about their sins, and that is a precious thing. It is a beautiful thing to be, to be rightly confronted about our sins. It's an, it's an opportunity to turn back to God and to have peace with the Heavenly Father. When someone corrects you, even if they correct you out of a bad spirit, let's be honest, a lot of times people correct us with a bad spirit and, and a wrong motive. Let me encourage you, when people correct you and they're right, be thankful for that. Because it's an opportunity to turn back to God and be restored to peace with your Heavenly Father. We shouldn't squander those kind of opportunities like they did. Because it is possible that like Hophni and like Phineas, that we can go too far. And when we go too far, we might find that we no longer have an opportunity to turn back to God. We might hit a point of no return. That's why the author of Hebrews reminds us of the psalmist's words when he writes, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not squander the opportunity for repentance. But while they squandered uh, opportunities for repentance, Samuel grew closer and closer with Yahweh. And the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Christians will, will likely recognize these words as familiar as we approach the Christmas season. Nearly identical words were spoken of another juvenile on his way to doing great things in the name of God. When Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem to the temple for the annual feast, perhaps that sounds familiar, they lost Jesus in the crowds and they found him teaching among the rabbis in the temple. And Luke, the biographer of Jesus, wrote that after they found him, 
Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was the better Samuel. And that's going to become a very, very profound point as we move through this book next week. In the final little vignette, though, we see the crash. Uh, and, and the world of Eli and his family are about to come crashing down. A man of God comes to Eli, and a man of God was, as best as I can tell, merely a way the ancient Hebrews could speak of a messenger of God who took a human form. And that could be a, a, an actual human, a prophet like Moses, and that seems to be usually what the case was. But sometimes it could be supernatural, like an angel. But presumably this is a prophet. He's anonymous and he's mysterious, and maybe that's appropriate. Uh, we know very few biographical details. If you look through Scripture, very few details about most of the prophets in Scripture. Um, often we don't even have a name, and sometimes we don't have much more than that. Because the prophets as people, are not as important as the message. Which, as an aside, I find that interesting that so many, and this is very much an aside, but very, so many of these so-called prophets today are really well-known in certain circles. They're even fawned over in certain circles. And yet their messages are forgettable. In fact, some of them will even tell you that their messages might be wrong so you can't rely on their messages. It's crazy, but they say to you, don't pay so much attention to the message. And yet, all the while, they're demanding attention for the messenger. Total opposite of most biblical prophets. So, just file that away. But I digress. Um... So he comes to Eli, this, this prophet, and he speaks to him as if, as we're accustomed to prophets speaking, thus says Yahweh. And he asks them a series of rhetorical questions beginning in the second half of verse 27. He says, did I re when, I, when he says, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father? He's talking about Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was a Levite and who was called to be the first high priest of Israel. His family, out of all the families of the tribe of Levi, were to serve as priests. They alone were the only portion of Israel who would receive a share of the sacrifices. A bit of the sacrifices went to the priest who, offered, uh, who helped to offer the sacrifice, as we discussed before. Then there's this, this kicker of a question. It's only half rhetorical. It can't be answered with an obvious yes or no. He says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings and honor your sons above me? The implication here is that God had honored this family, the family of Aaron, the family of Eli, but they had dishonored him. And we notice the second person pronoun, you. So far, all we've heard about is what Hophni and Phinehas have done. But the prophet is implicating Eli. And there's probably two things going on here. You know, we're not accustomed, to, in, in Western thinking, we're accustomed to everyone is responsible for their own actions. You know, rugged individualism, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, what did you do for me today? And that's all there is. Um, that's not the case in a lot of cultures around the world, and, and certainly not in the Asian culture of the ancient Hebrews. This, this is an Eastern culture. 
And there's much more of an idea that we are caught up in one another in ancient Hebrew culture and that we are responsible for one another. And in fact, the top of the pecking order has a sense of responsibility for the entire interconnected web below him. So as the high priest, Eli, it it wouldn't be enough to say they might have been doing that, but I didn't condone it. Well, maybe not, Eli, but you didn't stop it. You had a responsibility for what was going on below you. But as one one commentator points out, in in chapter 4, there's a brief mention of the fact that Eli is heavy. Which very well might mean, probably means, he was fat. And and it goes along with the prophet's words that Eli had and his sons had, had been fattening yourselves on the choicest parts. That seems to be likely. Eli wasn't directing the sin and he was willing to criticize his sons, but it comes across sort of wishy-washy, like, I, I, I wish you guys would stop doing this. But all the while, he's reaping the benefits of their sin. And it's, a, it's a reminder to us that it is not merely enough to not engage in actions that are sinful in themselves. It's, it's, it's also evil to enjoy the benefits of others' sins. That's why, you know, historically, Christians have been against the gaming industry. The lottery. It's not just that we think that it's an abuse of God's treasure that He has loaned us if we gamble with it, although Christians have historically said that as well, It's also that we know that it's predatory and disproportionately attacking people who are poor and financially desperate. And so we say, oh, we're going to have all this this gaming and slots and casinos and lottery, and we're going to use it to fund education. Isn't that that the way that it's always phrased to us by the politicians? The money's going to go for education. But it's wicked to entice poor people to pay for middle and upper class kids to go to better schools. It, it, it just is. And this, this is what Eli is doing here. He's not the one committing the sin, but he's going to allow the sin to happen so that he can reap the benefits of it. In light of Eli's failures as priest, God issues a proclamation, a warning, a threat that God will not simply let Eli's family continue as priests just because. God honors those God honors, and he dishonors those who dishonor him. So he makes four threats. There will be no old men in Eli's family. It's hard to know what an old man is, but it very well means, remember that people didn't live as long on average back then, It, it very well might be that there simply would not have been or there have been very few men who were ever old enough to serve as priests. That would be humiliating at the very least because of how much respect old age was given in Hebrew culture. Secondly, Eli himself is going to be grieved by how bad things will get. And we're going to see that in subsequent chapters. Three, all of Eli's descendants for that matter will die violent deaths beginning with his sons. And that will be the sign that the rest of this is going to come true. 
And fourth, until that time that God completely fulfills this word, Eli's family will become so insignificant that they won't be able to do the most basic priestly jobs. And if they're not serving and not able to do a basic job of a priest in the tabernacle, then they won't be able to share with the food offerings at the tabernacle. They will go from stealing stuff for themselves to supplicating for basic sustenance. They'll go from robbers to beggars and they'll find no relief. And then we have these words again. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. One last compare and contrast, one last repetition of of the spiritual prodigy of Samuel that gives us hope that in the midst of this dark and chaotic era, things might be about to change. But we notice that this story is flanked on both sides and at every break between every little vignette, we have a, a, a moment of telling us what's going on with Samuel amidst all this corruption. This constant, it's bad, it's bad, but Samuel was ministering, but Samuel was growing with Yahweh, but Samuel was growing in faithfulness with Yahweh. The first chapter and a half of this book told the story of a faithful family which finds itself centered in God's blessing when it is most surrendered to God's beauty. And the remainder of chapter 2 tells us the story of an unfaithful family which finds itself cursed by God when it is consumed with its own glory over God's. It is the antithesis of Hannah and Elkanah. And so it's a warning for us, and maybe a particularly apt warning for a Thanksgiving weekend, that if we live our lives to pursue our own glory, then we might find ourselves like Eli's family cursed by God. If we are consumed with our own glory, we might, like Eli, find ourselves cursed by God. We have hope in this passage. This last vignette gives us hope that all the unrighteousness and all the wickedness, all the power that's corrupted in our world, God sees it. He knows it. And he will work it out to his ends to correct it. Although notice it doesn't happen right here in this passage. We have the promise of it. The fulfillment is going to come down the line. And that's a wonderful promise for us. To know that the world as it is is not the world as it will be or as as our God desires it. But it's also a warning for us that while we might not be in positions of power, Although, let me suggest that most of us have positions of relative power before other people. We nonetheless might find ourselves acting more like Phineas and Hophni, who are more concerned about what we get out of this life and what good this life can do for us than about how God's glory will be manifested in our little piece 
of this life. And if that is true of us, then we are in a very dangerous place. Because there comes a point where God will no longer put up with our corruption. God will no longer put up with the ways that we treat with contempt His sacrifices. And let me suggest that there is a special message in here, not for the unbeliever, not for the, not for the pagan, not for the heathen, not for the person who doesn't see themselves as having anything to do with Jesus Christ, but I think that there is a special and dire warning for those of us who see ourselves as identified with Jesus Christ. Because this is what Israel is. Israel is the people of God. They're supposed to be the people of God. We know from Scripture that not all Israel is Israel. In other words, there is a a portion of Israel that is not considered to be God's people because of their lack of faithfulness, but on the outside, they look like the people of God. They offered sacrifices at the tabernacle. They were circumcised. They went through the rituals. They went through their different Jewish feasts. And yet, because they were called by the name of God, they called themselves the people of Yahweh, and they went through practices and habits that looked like Yahweh people, didn't make them Yahweh people. And it is possible for us Christians to treat with contempt the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is possible that we call ourselves Christians, we take up the name of the Lord in vain, as Hophni and Phinehas did, because we call ourselves Christians and yet our lives do not reflect a heart that desires true worship. It is possible to look like the people of God, but to have a heart that is far from Him. It is possible to look like a Christian to an outsider, a Moabite, or a, uh, a, a, a Canaanite, or an Egyptian, would have looked at Phineas and Hophni and said, oh, they are Israelites, they're, they're people of Yahweh. But what sort of impression would they have gotten about what the people of Yahweh were like if they looked at Phineas and Hophni's example? Wouldn't they have said that the God of Israel is much like the God of the Babylonians. He's he's much like Baal. He's he's much like Asherah. They have sex at the temple just like we do. They have uh, the, the priests take the best parts of the sacrifice just like we do. There's nothing special about Yahweh. Nothing special about their God. I'll tell you, this I don't know what you guys see on social media, but this, this is what, what uh, my non-Christian friends, they don't say it in, to my face, but they'll say it on social media, right? You know, this is what their perception of Christians is. That we are hypocrites. That we are people who live for ourselves more than we live for Jesus. Because 
our lives don't reflect anything particularly different. We act the way the world acts. Precisely, we live for our own glory and what's important to us rather than living for God's glory. The author of of Hebrews himself has a warning for us that I think is much the same as the warning that was given to Eli's sons. The author of Hebrews in in chapter 6, verse 4, says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Listen to what he says. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. There's a danger that those who call themselves by the name Christian can treat the sacrifice of God, Jesus Christ, with contempt, even as Eli did. And it could be that we find ourselves so far gone that there's no longer an opportunity to repent. So do you live, Christian, for the glory of God? Hey, we're, not, we're not perfect in this life. But at the same time, don't say that I'm, I'm not perfect as an excuse either. Do you live a life of repentance? That when you do fall short, you return to Christ. You rededicate your commitment to giving God the first and best so that you're not stealing the fat from the sacrifice. You're not giving God your leftovers. That you're not trying to use your relative privilege in the world and in Christ to abuse God's grace. I'm forgiven. So what does it matter if I do this one more time? Inevitably, judgment will come. And you might find that God is calling you out that you didn't really know Christ at all. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you've called us into your people. We believe better things about each other here at Gateway. We have seen in the lives of our members their testimony matched with action. but we also know that our hearts are faltering. They are deceptive above all things, as your prophet tells us. And our hearts are inevitably untrustworthy. Make us a people who are at times even skeptical of our own hearts, testing ourselves to see whether we are in the faith as Paul challenges us. Let us be quick to correct one another with love and a pure heart, 
not with a false humility like Eli. And let us be quick to receive correction that we might be moved closer in fellowship and righteousness to Jesus. We pray, God, that if there are those who have taken up the name of the Lord in vain, who have proclaimed themselves Christians but have not lived lives that reflect anything that is distinctly Christian, we have lived as hypocrites without repentance. Would you please this morning shock us back to repentance? That we might live before you and not die. We pray this in the name of the one who can do all this and more, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's continue our worship and song. Stand with you.